Welcome to Read Scholars Live. I am your host, Mary Fleming, president of Read Scholars and practicing OBGYN. Read Scholars is an organization composed of physicians, dentists, and mental health specialists committed to collective action to achieve health equity. Our podcast is a platform to have conversations about innovative solutions to narrow the gap around health equity. With that being said, let's talk health equity. Today's guest is fellow Reed Scholar and past president of Reed Scholars, Dr. Valerie Williams. Originally from Chicago, Illinois, Dr. Williams trained, um, started training at the illustrious Morehouse in Atlanta before matriculating to the University of Maryland in Baltimore for medical school, and then on to Detroit to complete his residency training at Wayne State. He completed the Mogden Commonwealth Fund Fellowship in Minority Health Policy at Harvard in Boston in 2008. And in, in all of his free time, Dr. Williams serves as a lieutenant colonel in the United States Army Reserve Medical Corps, in addition to being a loving husband and devoted father. Currently, Dr. Williams is a professor of surgery and chief of the Division of Trauma and Critical Care in Washington, D.C. at Howard. Mallory, I know that was a lot, and there's so much more <laughs> that you do. Is there anything that I missed or got wrong or that you would like to add or share with our audience before we get started? No, Mary, I think you did a wonderful job in, in encapsulating all that. I, I recently was promoted to colonel um, last time I was in Afghanistan, but that's a minor, uh, minor thing. Impressive. You, you have done a lot and continue to do a lot. And so um, we'll talk a little bit more about what you're doing now as we move through the podcast. But I would like to start just to get a little bit more information about you and why you chose surgery or why surgery chose you and how you began your pathway down the, the health equity route. Right. So I think uh, that's a very interesting question because it's one that I continue to think about every year that I am a surgeon. I, I, I can distinctly remember when I was at the University of Maryland, uh, a few things. One, I remember um, Don Wilson, who was my dean, at the University of Maryland as a medical student, and what a, a tremendous force he was for uh, health equity in terms of the recruitment and retention, not just the recruitment, but also the retention of underserved minorities into the University of Maryland uh, School of Medicine. I think that's where we often, um, we often begin the gap and actually the access to the opportunity to become a physician. Um, I very much was uh, in awe of Dr. Wilson and Dr. Satcher at the time. And so my my thoughts would have been that I would have been an internist. Mm -hmm. To that extent, I do think that to a certain, at a certain level, surgery chose me because I did it first. And once I was bitten by the bug, then there was no going back. <laughs> I think the interesting thing was that usually when um, you, 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 go, you get into a surgical subspecialty, you can struggle sometimes um, as a proceduralist to find your way back to the policy and the public health aspects of what we do, what we would call the upstream impactors of health. And for me, I was so fortunate to have uh, a couple of critical conversations with Reed Scholars, uh, Laquandra Nesbitt being one, um, but not just Laquandra. I had a conversation with Dr. Kim Rhodes. Out of, at the time, she was at Stanford. Now she's at University of California, San Francisco. And they 
we had known each other and they, they kind of heavily recruited me um, into the clan of the Reed Scholars by saying, this is just simply a phenomenal fellowship. This is something that you have to do. You have all of the proclivities or sensibilities to really uh, take advantage of the skill sets that are being offered in this fellowship. And so after I finished my fellowship at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Surgical Critical Care, I did give a year to the fellowship and it was a very, very, very wise investment. And I think, I think that's an important point that you brought up. Like you said, any specialty lends itself um, more than others as far as concepts and, and thought process. But um, being a proceduralist scheduling wise is, is much different um, than when you're just, you know, working or not just, but when you're working solely in the outpatient setting, but, you know, taking call and covering emergencies and having the, the mental bandwidth to, to do all those things makes it a little bit interesting. And, and so for those listening, you, you know, if you look at our fellowship, there aren't as many um, surgeons in the group as, as other specialties. So I, that kind of leads me to my next question in that being a trauma surgeon gives you a very unique perspective in addition to having military experience. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we wanted to talk about today, which is, you know, something that's been in the, the news quite a bit uh, recently is, is our situation around gun violence in the country. And so, you know, we, we can go at it from a whole bunch of different routes because there's many, I think it's, it's a complex issue and we can talk about different aspects of it. But I thought we could talk a little bit about youth violence in particular our interactions with the police and what's kind of going on over the past few years. And, you know, if we want to touch on school shootings, which I think is a different um, dynamic as well, but, you know, whichever one of those that you, if, <laughs> if you, I don't know if I should say you want to talk about, but where you want to start the conversation and yeah. as we, as it specifically race, relates to health equity. Sure. I think that so much about being a trauma surgeon naturally lends itself to have a unique lens on health equity um, because it's not normal in society to be up at 2 a.m. taking care of people who've been stabbed, taking care of people who've had firearm injuries, taking care of people who have suffered intimate partner violence, taking care of people who are suffering from substance abuse and therefore have motor vehicular trauma. That, that's not normal. Those are preventable healthcare costs. Those are preventable healthcare conditions. And so when you see segregation of particular segments of the population um, um, suffering from those conditions, um, the natural questions, I think, uh, arise, and, and certainly that is true when it comes to gun violence in America. I think the first thing that just has to be said is that we, we, we certainly, as public health experts, as, as physicians, as citizens in the society who just care about our fellow human being, we, we extend our best wishes and extend all of our support to the members of the Florida military community who have just suffered, of course, uh, from uh, a mass shooting in, in which two uh, members of the military were 
were fatally injured and others were injured as well. I think the discussion is so um, complicated that you have to first begin to talk about it within our society. Mm. How do you talk about gun violence within the American society? Well, we are a society that today is still struggling, struggling from massive inequity. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult to have uh, long and productive conversations on that issue when those conversations aren't being really held by our political leaders. I mean, you can almost count in today's modern world how many times a U.S. president says the word poor or the word poverty. Okay, Um, you can definitely count how many times a U.S. president, be they white or black, visits an impoverished school or an impoverished community. And so when we have a leadership, which is bipartisan, on making this issue somewhat invisible, it becomes difficult to bring it out of, into the public and shed light onto it. When you look at gun violence in America, the tragic reality is, is that if you look at the individual, you can begin to categorize how gun violence will impact that individual. And it shouldn't be that. But certainly what the epidemiology, and we are public health people, so we do adhere to science and public and epidemiology. Um, if you are white, you are about 80% likely if you're going to be impacted from gun violence, it will be an issue of suicide. Now that's not exactly, it's 77% of the last statistics I saw, but roughly it's, it's easy to remember if it's eight, if you just say 80%, because if you're black, you're 80% likely to be, um, if you're impacted by gun violence, for it to be homicide. So here you have two divergent realities right. in the nation that pull in opposite directions, just based upon um, the racial makeup of the individual citizen. That, that, that should not be. If you look at gun violence as a whole, two-thirds of it will be suicide in nature. 13% of it will be gang-related. And, and the part we probably talk most about is only 1%, which is the mass shootings that we, that we see. Those data alone are a little bit tricky, though, because if you look at the increasing trends, particularly amongst African-American females, it shows that their rates of suicide, particularly if you're looking at the adolescent subgroup, are increasing by greater than 100%. If you look at African-American children as a whole, you see that if you compare those children to other racial groups, that they have significantly higher suicide rates, two and threefold. If you look at African-American men, adolescents, we talked about the women who have rates that are increasing at greater than 100%. Well, their rates are increasing greater than 60% in the suicide um, realm. And so it's really, although we think of suicide as a primarily Caucasian um, 
distribution, um, we have to watch minority suicide rates very carefully because the data is showing that they are increasing significantly and substantially. So the question becomes, how do we talk about gun violence in a way that is able to address when one takes their own life from a mental health or other reason? Um, and how can we talk about it in also a way that addresses urban violence, um, which may spring forth from a whole host of issues that we tend to talk about, about structural inequality, structural violence, structural racism, um, lack of access to quality food, sh home, shelter, and jobs, and living wage, uh, but also have a open mind enough to talk about it as a just a crime issue in some in some aspects. I think those I think those that's a very complicated conversation. And then how do you also address the entity of mass shootings, which are far less of the problem, but tend to take up most of um, the media coverage. Right. And I think once you look at how different organizations and different entities address this issue, what you're going to find is that they're actually targeting one of those discrete sectors of the issue as opposed to the whole mm -hmm. issue. And if we're not careful as people who care about disparities, who care about health equity, we will take the newly legislated $25 million by the Congress for gun research funding, and we will find that most of that funding, whether it's $12.5 million by the CDC or $12.5 million by the National Institutes of Health, is allocated in a direction that really doesn't address the, uh, the homicide disparities. And, and I was going to ask, well, I had a couple questions kind of related to that. One, I mean, I know that as a whole, there's not a lot of research that's going on in this area and there's not a lot of research dollars because even, you know, even like you said, that's, we have some money coming down the pipe, but when you're really looking at the issue and how diverse the issue is in itself, that's really not a lot of money to, to address all the, the facets of the issue. But um, what do you, well, so my two questions are, one, do we have any insight on what that, what's causing the shifts in the, the increased number in adolescent suicide, especially in the minority community? Is there, is it access to weapons? Is it, is it social media? Is it, is there some kind of shifts that we're seeing, I guess? Um, and two, what do you see kind of coming forward? So we're, we're coming up on, you know, an election year. Um, are there any, have you heard any talking points from not even necessarily any of the candidates, but just kind of as people are talking about the issues going forward, are we expecting any policy change coming down the pike? I think both of those are great questions. Let's try to deal with them one at a time. When we look inside of the minority community and particularly adolescents and children, we know that society as a whole is shifting in terms of the amount of times parents are spending in homes as opposed to trying to make a living to provide health care, provide sustainable uh, access to uh, quality housing. And we don't know a lot about how societal changes 
particularly amongst the um, more modest sections of our society are impacting many things. Um, again, $25 million uh, just released, uh, just legislated by the Congress. The original Senate bill was for $50 million. Even if we had got the $50 million, as you so correctly stated, really not a lot of money to deal with a massive issue with many different domains, right? Because why Johnny may choose to take his life in suburban America may not have much to do with why Jaquan or Tanisha are making the decisions that they are making in urban America. Um, is there a, a, a role to look at cyberbullying? Well, of course there is. Is there a role to look at already uh, crime in that community at certain levels? Yes, there is too. What we do know is that when we look at weapons that are involved in um, crimes, whether it be in New York or Maryland, 80% of those weapons are trafficking weapons that come from surrounding states that have uh, looser or weaker gun laws. And so when we start to talking about access to weapons, which is I think a great issue that you brought up, um, we have to recognize that most gun manufacturers are not located in urban America. So many of the guns that we find making their way to urban environments or, or indeed brought there. If you look at D.C., uh, most of our crime-related um, weapons are actually uh, have an origin in Northern Virginia. And so to, I say that to say that when we look from a legislative policy standpoint, there'll be many people who recall at federal policy and they'll talk in many different ways about how we really don't make large gains in the society when we look at overarching federal laws. That's just simply wrong. Um, we are going to need overarching federal legislation that deals with the trafficking of guns in order for those citizens who choose to live in gun-free zones through a democratic process to truly be able to carry out that experiment and see if that's the right thing for them. Because right now, we see that surrounding districts with weaker laws are influencing those populations that have chosen much, much different uh, legislation. New York particularly and D.C. are pretty strong, um, have pretty strong gun legislation on the books. Again, um, I want to also talk about the aspects of your second question, which really deal with the campaign and policy. You know, I have uh, been um, intermittently attentive to the campaign. <clears throat> and for understandable reasons, there are other uh, huge issues right now on our national political landscape that simply are not addressing the issues that you and I are talking about. Um, now, uh, what I will say is, is that I have not really heard the level of nuanced discussion in the debates or on the national scene as of yet that push this conversation further. 
And when I say nuanced debates, I mean, it's important to recognize that I think one of the more innovative things that we have done in certain jurisdictions are what we call red flag laws. And actually, these red flag laws were marked up in the um, House uh, Justice Committee. Um, and it was a great debate. And I think where we as individuals who are concerned about health disparities and gaps in healthcare delivery and in disease origination have to ask our question is how do red flag laws um, avail themselves or work in communities of color or disadvantaged communities? That's a rational question that needs to be answered. It's great that there are laws that allow individuals to petition their local government for the uh, temporary custody of weapons when someone who they know or a family member appears to have a condition that will not allow for them to responsibly uh, uh, be owners of that weapon and for fear that they may hurt themselves or someone else. I think that's a wonderful thing and it has certainly shown thus far to be a, a move in the right direction. What we have not seen is what happens when we study those laws in jurisdictions that are diverse in jurisdictions that are underserved. That matters because the weapon in question may or may not be legally owned, one. The person in possession of the weapon may or may not be uh, legally uh, entitled to own the weapon. Right. And so with those two elements on the table, we as a society have to ask the question, well, what is the more important thing? Is the more important thing to adjudicate the nature of the weapon or the validity of the ownership of the weapon or is the more important thing that there be a mechanism such that the weapon is not utilized uh, for the commission of a crime or for the commission of uh, taking the owner's uh, life. We have not adjudicated those questions. Mm -hmm. And so I think there are reasons to look at red flag laws as a great step forward that then need to also be uh, tested and analyzed in different communities. That's where you and I, that's why there are read scholars and people who are interested in this work um, who have to be uh, present in, in the space. In general, I'll, I will tell you that to the extent that guns are a national um, discussion point for politics, uh, it's likely not helpful for uh, more liberal candidates. Mm -hmm. um, the way in which that conversation can deteriorate, it's easier to sum up positions in one-liners and two-liners. This is a this is a very difficult conversation as as a gun owner. Right. Uh, when you talk about the Constitution's provision for us to own guns, and you talk about our hopes and our dreams for our society and how we can make those two things work together for everyone. That's not a discussion that lends itself well to a campaign. That's a discussion <laughs> that lends itself well to the kind of conversations that you and I are having today. Right. 
and and so and I was gonna ask, and, and I, I guess you kind of answered this in a way, but you know when we look when we think about public health as in general in our country, and we try to compare ourselves to other countries, right? Um, you know, we always come back with, well, not always, but one of the things we come back to is that our country has just such a a diverse a diversity of experience and makeup and and uh, the nuances between where you where your place, if you will, in the country kind of dictates a lot of our our public health interventions. But you know, but think so. Keeping that in mind, do you, I mean, do you see a sweet spot there somewhere between being able to maintain people's Second Amendment rights, but also being able to make gun control much more um, strict in a way that benefits, you know, most Americans. Is there any other countries that are, have anything comparable other? Um, I mean, I think the red, the red flag um, laws are, are one thing, but is there anything else out there that you see? I think we, we have to understand the uniqueness of this place called America from a perspective of we have more guns in this country than we have people. We're about 325 million people. We own more weapons in this country than we have people and we manufacture significant amounts of weapons in this country. Most of those weapons will not be rifles for hunting. Most of those weapons will be handguns. And so we have to start foundationally with an understanding that we love guns. And it's not everybody, right? That probably may not be the case in the Northeast. But I can tell you as a person who's practiced in the Midwest, as a person who practiced in the um, South and the East, uh, I can tell you that there's a significant aspect of our nation that just has a real love affair with guns. And when we say America, we think of things like you know, apple pie and the flag, but right next to that, in many sections of our nation, we need to put a gun because these are just truisms. And so if we enter into a conversation about gun policy for the nation, okay, with uh, the kind of disparaging thoughts that sometimes emanate in our discussions, it doesn't lead to productive uh, outcomes because there are just there's just realities and, and 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 we have to first get to know one another. You know, it's so you to, to understand the gun discussion in this country, you have to have traveled across this nation. You can't just fly between San Francisco and Boston. Right. Um, you got to have been in El Paso. You got to been have have gone to places like Idaho and Utah, where guns are significantly enmeshed in how fathers interact with their sons, okay, as they grow up, right? And many people don't understand that. So when I was a trauma surgeon at Louisiana State University in Treeport, you know, one of the things that I had to develop a understanding about was the culture of that society. And one of the things that I learned was that a part of family activity was that about the age of nine to 12, children would begin to go on the hunting trips with dad and mom. 
and they would go on the fishing trips and they would learn how to do things like shoot the pheasant, shoot the deer, clean the deer, skin the deer, these types of things. And so from a public health standpoint, the idea that we were going to uh, have policy that would inhibit normal family activity was just not a feasible notion. Um, At the same time, we had to understand what was the nature of unintentional firearm injury in that region. It would be a trauma surgeon if I didn't do that. The notions by my patients was, wait a minute, you know, we teach our kids at an early age how to handle weapons and we're there with them. We teach how to clean them. We teach how to load them. And therefore, we probably have a lower overall unintentional injury rate than other regions. I said, well, let's, let's look at what's causing these unintentional injuries. When we did a trauma center study, just looking at our trauma database and registry, we found some things that were very interesting. One, we found out that a lot of the airsoft products, which are kind of the gateway guns, if you will, mm-hmm. um, that were on the market, were significant causes of unintentional injury for young people in the society. No one ever knew that or thought that. People speculated that it would be handguns. Right? Rifles also were a key uh, were a key issue in that in that population. And so we never did the work to try to control anything. We did the work to understand what the problems were and then demonstrate the data to the individuals so that they could construct their own solutions. And those solutions, quite frankly, or vary depending on where you are in that region. Um, I think a very similar issue, Mary, is this whole notion of gun storage. Mm-hmm. When you look at gun storage solutions that are on the market and available and found to be acceptable to gun owners, they are very expensive. The notion that those solutions are gonna be the same solutions for people who live in different environments and may have different socioeconomic uh, uh, status is, is, is maybe not the case. So we have to understand that the solutions won't look the same in each of the environments that, 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 that have the same issues. And we have to be the ones who are able to articulate that. And I think we also have to build bridges to all communities. Gun owners in this country, and we don't say it enough, as a gun owner, I will say it, even though it probably doesn't pertain to me. Gun owners, a small section or faction of them, fear that the end of the road when it comes to research, when it comes to policy, when it comes to any discussion, is some infringement on their right to own weapons. And because they fear that, they are not brought to the table or they do not come to the table. And that makes the table uh, not full of all the stakeholders. And that makes the conversation of limited applicability. And what we have to do is bring gun owners to the table in these conversations. And we have to bring their notions and we have to bring everything that they want to add to the conversation so that we can get to a place where we are really beginning to 
see all of the challenges and yet have all of the voices uh, available to confront them. Shifting just a touch, but also kind of touching on one of the things you mentioned and, you know, you, you're clearly a surgeon, but you're also an educator, right? So you're working with training our future physicians. And when we talk about this conversation, whether we're talking about, you know, how do we approach it from a public health standpoint? How do we approach it as um, a policy standpoint? But one of the interesting conversations that came out, was it last year, about physicians staying in their lane, right, around the conversation. Um, What are your thoughts on talking about these type of things as we train future physicians um, to be, you know, even if they don't want to go back and, you know, do a formal fellowship or get their, their MPH, they can still have a voice in the conversation. So how do we impart that in, in the training process? Yeah, that's interesting because when you look at the stay in your lane kind of uh, era of, the, of our back and forth in this discussion, something very interesting was happening that we cannot as policy individuals ignore. It just simply has to be discussed and it has to be uh, exposed for what it is. When um, Representative Dickey from Arkansas decided that he was going to impose a rider that would limit funding or ban funding, really, from gun research. What the representative was doing and what those who agreed with him and aligned themselves with him was doing was simply saying that, listen, we don't care what the science says. And we're not interested in those people who do the science being able to influence the policy debate on this issue. We're eliminating them from the conversation. It was essentially inviting the docs, the public health people, the, the, the social scientists, they basically were told to get up from the table and leave the room. That's what that was in so many words. When we were also as physicians um, told by uh, gun activists and the National Rifle Association that we in some way did not have a space or a place in the American conversation on gun violence, we were being told pretty much the exact same thing. Now, we responded to that uh, with an indignation that was appropriate. But one of the things we needed to do was to carefully reflect on the repeat invitation out of the room so that we educate Americans that this wasn't the first time that your doctors, public health people, social scientists, have been invited away from this debate. This is just another time where we have individuals on one side of the discussion saying that these individuals will have no voice in the discussion and therefore they will not be a part of formulating any of the solutions in terms of policy. I think that's critical because I just told you that my recipe for going forward with policy is an inclusive one. We've got to bring people who feel very strongly 
about their Second Amendment rights to the table so that they become reassured about our motives of creating a type of society that we both want. Because I formally, I fundamentally believe that gun owners and non-gun owners want the same thing for their children when they when they for their children when they walk out of the door in the morning and get on the bus. I believe that. So I don't believe that there are different aspirations for the child with the lunch pail when they leave the door. So it's just a matter of how do we get to those same aspirations in those different contexts. When uh, one at when one side of the discussion. Um, chooses to invite the other side. I, I don't think that that pushes us closer to a, a solution. I think that pushes us further away um, from uh, a solution. And that is a phenomenon that has been occurring within our perpetual conversation about this in, about this issue as we are maturing as the oldest experiment in democracy. Okay, and so every time that phenomenon comes up where we invite individuals away from the table, we have to be clear. This is another invitation away versus an invitation toward the table. And historically, that has not led to huge uh, um, gains politically or fundamentally in the, in the conversation. It was scientists and public health professionals who enabled us to get to red flag laws. And what a tremendous success that has been. Um, and we, that needs to be celebrated, but that needs to be understood through the context of which it emerges. It is scientists that will help us to move toward uh, acceptable technology for gun safety by gun owners. Some, some technology, as they've said, is not acceptable to them, and that's okay. But there will be other technology that will be acceptable to, to them in terms of smart guns. And so we have to continue to engage each other. We have to remain in conversation about a very, very tough regional issue. And I think more invitations to the table rather than away from the table are going to produce uh, the best results. That, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Um, well, thank you, Mallory. I, I guess as a, as a way to close, um, you know, I think we've talked about a lot, and of course, like we just, <laughs> just the tip of the iceberg, like with any of these conversations, but I think, to highlight one of the points that you just made at the end of the day, I think people all want a better life for their kids. Right. Um, and if it's not even your, your biological kids, but you know, the, our collective children going forward. And I think there has to be a way that we can um, talk about this in a productive way um, and try to meet, you know, the needs, the, the needs of, of the country itself and, and keep us safe. Um, so uh, with that, um, do you have any closing thoughts or words or any, I always try to end a little uh, with a little bit of encouraging words. <laughs> Some of these topics are so heavy, but um, you know, any encouraging words for those who are interested in, you know, coming to the table to being part of the conversation um, going forward? Well, absolutely. I think when you look at what the children from Parkland High School were able to uh, to do after they suffered a horrendous, horrendous mass shooter attack in this nation. It's, it's very encouraging. They engaged the society fundamentally as, um, as advocates, as citizens who were empowered with voice and 
there's so much that we can look at that is hopeful because of them. Uh, and it's not just the march to save our lives and the images that we saw during that march that were hopeful for the future leadership of the democracy. It's also the, the gubernatorial election that followed their protest that pretty much in large part came out of, uh, of, that, of that tragedy in that community uh, that led to a historic run um, for the governor of Florida uh, by a minority candidate and, and also a run for the governor of uh, Georgia as well. We look at the legislation that they were able to help to uh, advocate for and pass in the state of Florida as it relates to guns. This was done by a Republican governor. We look at that being the seeds in reality to what happened when the mass shooting event happened in Dayton and the crowds were able to say, do something, do something, do something. And a rep another Republican governor did in fact go to Columbus, the uh, seat of the government in the state of Ohio and pass successful uh, legislation that would begin to address uh, the citizens of Dayton's um, um, anxieties and fears. As we look at the issue, um, local municipalities um, are beginning to come together and come up with solutions that are, are right for them. We are unfortunately inappropriately targeting mental health um, in the wrong context, but in a sense, through that inappropriate uh, invocation of, of mental health as, 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 as something that needs to be at the center of the debate, at least we are dealing with mental health because for so many other reasons we need to do that. And that is, that, that, that's very, uh, that's very, uh, very powerful. Uh, I want to thank uh, you, President Fleming, for leading the Reed Scholars and having these conversations with us about uh, our work and, and contemporary policies uh, in public health. And I think that on the whole, there's a lot to be optimistic about, uh, both for, in terms of the Reed Scholars and what we're doing and in terms of the nation. And so I am a, 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 an eternal optimist. And I thank you for the opportunity to have this conversation and speak with you. Thank you, Melanie. And, and same thing to you. I mean, um, you've been clearly a supporter of Reed Scholars from the beginning and a, a huge supporter and encourager of me. So I appreciate that. And, um, and you know, I'm always in awe of all the things that you do. So for any of you listening, uh, if you ever had the chance to hear Mallory speak, I definitely think you should take up that opportunity. And um, Mallory, if people want to follow up with you or get in contact with you, what would be your best uh, platform? Call me on my cell phone, 617-543-8233. Everybody else does. So you can go ahead on and join them. <laughs> You're so funny. All right. Well, I have taken up enough of your time today. I appreciate you talking with me. And um I'm sure we will continue the conversation um, going forward as part of Reed Scholars, but 
um, also I encourage, you know, like you said, there's a lot, there's lots to be done on the local level. So uh, for those of you who are out there who are interested in this topic, please use your voice um, and, and talk about it, not just with your family, but also with your, your local legislators and, and hopefully we can make, make this country a little safer. So with that, um, thank you so much. And I hope you all will tune in with us again next time. Thanks, Thanks Valerie. All right.